So what I would like to do in the time we have here to frame up uh, this weekend together is talking about breaking the spirit of mammon. It often finds, I know it's a light start, light start to get you going, breaking the spirit of mammon. But what I want to do tonight is talk about what mammon is, where it comes from, why it's so deadly, and how you resist mammon. What it is, where it comes from, why it's so deadly, and how we can resist it. So let's jump in. Number one, what is mammon? What is mammon? I'll give you a couple of definitions from a philosopher here. Mammon is the inordinate desire to possess wealth, goods, or objects of abstract value with the intention to keep it for oneself far beyond the dictates of basic survival and comfort. It is applied to a markedly high desire for and pursuit of wealth, status, and power. Greed is similarly, similarly an inordinate desire to acquire or possess more than one needs. He goes on, money is a ubiquitously tempting because of a, it's a kind of umbrella principle covering everything money can buy. It is also, or rather falsely promises to be, a security blanket against change. It apes divine self-sufficiency. He goes on, mammon is not desire as such or even desire for temporal possessions as such, but the immoderate desire for them. For it is natural for man to desire external things as means, but mammon makes them into ends, into gods. And when a creature is made into a god, it becomes a devil. Mammon in its simplest form is the desire for abundance apart from God. It's the desire for everything that God alone has, but to take it from him and to have it on our own. Another author says this, you cannot serve both God and mammon. Jesus didn't deny that money was a God. That God even has a name, mammon. Jesus affirmed mammon as the sole serious competitor to the Trinity. Jesus understands the antithesis or contrast between God's way and mammon's way as the most fundamental distinction in all of life and history. He didn't divide the world into left versus right or liberal versus conservative or the envious versus the entrepreneur or Christian versus Muslim. Jesus didn't make mammon just a side temptation for a few like we often do. Typical Christians tend to shrink mammon into one of many small idols alongside Aphrodisian sexuality, Hephaestian technology, Bacchanalian passion, Promethean science, Gaian mysticism, the Leviathan state and others. For Jesus, mammon wasn't one idol among equals he singled it out as the direct competitor to God. He never contrasted the idols of sexuality or knowledge or the earth or sin starch opposition to God. Jesus never said you can't serve sexuality in God or knowledge in God, though these were idols too. Mammon is an umbrella principle to give you the resources that you need and want so you no longer have to depend on God for anything. Mammon is the defining spirit in many ways of our culture. Where does mammon come from? What are the roots of mammon? Well, I would like to put forth that mammon starts in the Garden of Eden, and it starts with Satan. Mammon is not just an idea or a concept. Mammon is demonic because it has its heart set against dependence upon God. It starts in the Garden. It starts in the garden. When you read the biblical narrative, you have this beautiful account of God putting, creating Adam and Eve in his own image, giving them the whole world and saying to them, fill the earth, make something beautiful with it. 
take these raw resources that I've put here and develop human culture for my glory and for your good. And I think every man ever since then has sought to be the man, haven't they? And yet Adam at this point truly was the man. He was with a beautiful woman, completely naked. He was the first man that ever lived and the whole world was his. What else could Adam have wanted? The world was literally his. Eve, the mother of the living, a beautiful gift. Co-creator, partnering with him. The whole world was theirs. And then Satan has the audacity to come along to say to them, there's more available if you'd step away from God. What else was more available to them? They had an intimate face-to-face relationship with God. They had dominion over all creation. There was no sin. And he lied to them and said, there's more apart from God. Mammon is that spirit that desires to go ahead and achieve abundance apart from God. And what a lie it was. You look at the misery that that produced, not just for them, but for all of us, living in a culture where people seek abundance apart from God. It results not in freedom, but in tyranny and heartache and oppression and slavery. That spirit of mammon, that desire for for accomplishment and wealth apart from God bleeds as a temptation through the rest of scriptures. And one of the interesting places it shows up, it's in Ezekiel 26 through 28, in a place that you almost wouldn't expect it. It's a place where God is rebuking the proud, successful ruler of Tyre. And in this particular passage, what's so fascinating about it, we're obviously not going to go through those chapters tonight, but what's so fascinating about it is you get a prophetic picture or an insightful picture of what happens almost when a spirit or a principality maps itself onto a person and that person maps itself onto a whole culture. So this is one of those places where you can't, you're not quite sure if they're talking about Satan or an earthly ruler or some sort of mashup of the few, but I want you to see the spirit of mammon in a leader building a culture. This is what it says. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, take up a lament concerning the king of Tyre and say to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says, you were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You're in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone adorned you, carnelian, chrysolite, emerald, topaz, onks, jasper, lupus, lazul, turquoise, and beryl. Your settings and mountings were made of gold. On the day you were created, they were prepared. You were anointed as a guardian cherub, for so I ordained you. You were on the holy mount of God. You walked among the fiery stones. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till wickedness was found in you. Through your, listen to this. So how did the wickedness come about? Through your widespread trade, you were filled with violence and you sinned. So I drove you in disgrace from the Mount of God and I expelled you, guardian cherub, from among the fiery stones. Your heart became proud on account of your beauty and you corrupted your wisdom because of your splendor. The word of the Lord came to me later on. Son of man, say to the ruler of Tyre, this is what the sovereign Lord says. In the pride of your heart, you say, I am a God. I sit in the throne of a God in the heart of the seas. By your wisdom and understanding, you have gained wealth for yourself and amassed gold and silver in your treasuries. By your great skill in trading, you have increased your wealth and because of your wealth, your heart has grown proud. Now, most of us, when we think of the satanic spirit, we think of evil or we think of uh, cultural caricatures. But how many of you, when you think of a satanic spirit, realize that it can lead to pride that is embedded in successful financial campaigns? Very few of us see Satan as a successful commodities broker. 
And yet you see in this passage what happens when this abundance apart from God fills a heart and makes it proud. It results in the judgment and warning of God being rained down on a leader and on a city. Now, that was quite some time ago, Tyre, and here we are in sunny Orlando. I used to live here. I love this place. We certainly wouldn't have a spirit like that mapping itself into our culture at all, would we? Well, I believe that we do, and what I want to do in this next little section here is sort of pull back the layers to show you just from my perspective, through some research, how I believe that mammon has come to be the primary discipling mechanism of our culture. Part of the problem that we have in the church today is that we talk about discipleship all the time, but we don't realize that often the most effective discipling mechanism is the culture around us. The world seems to be doing a better job of making disciples of the world than the church does of making disciples of Jesus. What makes it so effective? Well, a part of it is that all of these industries combine together to inch us and edge us away from dependence of God. And where I think this really begins to pick up steam in American culture, by the way, I'm American now. I'm married an American. I'm an American citizen. So any critique of America is self-critique, okay? I'm not a self-righteous Australian with a finger because we're a convict nation to start with, so I have no <laughs> cultural pride. Total depravity and then cultural depravity is really a state to be in. This brings us back to where we are in culture. I want to start by an image that may be very famous to you, and it's an image from the Great Depression. It's an image of a man by a car. $100 will buy this car, must have, must have cash, lost all on the stock market. This is a moment where America began to feel the pains of the economy, where those who were ahead and those who were below met in the middle, losing everything. And the Great Depression, if you read accounts or listen to stories, greatly affected the American psyche. It produced a scarcity mindset. It made people worry about where the next meal was going to come from. It produced a culture of thrift, very, very conservative financially. The generation that grew up during the Great Depression, the thrifty generation, they got jobs and they began to rebuild. They began to remake the fabric of the United States. But then they had children and they sent those children off to war. Those kids went off to war for the most part with a thrifty mentality. If you have a look at this next slide here, you will see this is one of the defining moments. You've got men going into factories, you've got people who are working. And then these people who have a, a, a work ethic and Values for family go off to war. They fight in our culture. And when they're going about doing that, something dramatic happens for the first time. While the men are off fighting the war, women enter the workforce for the very first time. Men are on the front and women move into the factories. This is the first time in American culture, really, where women move into the place of earning a wage alongside their husband and you end up with two-income families. Women are in the factories getting paid. Women are doing their role. They're playing their part. And then this is working together to produce, when they come home, a sense of affluence. America, with its vast military power, drops a bomb and devastates our enemies. When they drop the bomb, if we've got a picture here of what, what the bombs drop, next slide. These are the results of the atomic bomb being dropped. And this is London. This is what happened in a large amount. Next slide here of the European cities. Now, what's so fascinating about this is that the infrastructure for their economy and for industry was destroyed wherever the war was fought. But the United States 
didn't have much damage on its own soil apart from Pearl Harbor. So as a result, our infrastructure, our industry, our economy had the opportunity to rise above the world, not just as a military power, but an economic power. These Americans came home and had families, and as they had families, it was hard for women to go back to the home to get rid of the double income, and as a result, the foundation of American life began to shift. Economists began to realize the need to seize the opportunity to rise above as the world's superpower and economic power. One economist put it like this, our enormously productive economy demands that we make consumption our way of life, that we convert the buying and use of goods into rituals, that we seek our spiritual satisfaction, our ego satisfaction in consumption. We need things consumed, burned up, replaced, and discarded at an ever-accelerating rate. The problem that they had, though, is that the story that was in the typical American's heart was a story of conservative thrift. It was a thrift. It was a story of modesty. It was a story of saving. It was not a story of extravagance. And so they came along, the economists came along, and gave rise to what some marketers called the rise of the story wars. And they had a task to subvert the American heart and seduce it towards a mammonish spirit. Jonah Sachs has written on this, says this, stories are a particular type of human communication designed to persuade an audience of a storyteller's worldview. The storyteller does this by placing characters, real or fictional, onto a stage and showing what happens in these characters over a period of time. Each character pursues some type of goal in accordance with his or her values, facing difficulty along the way and either succeeding or failing according to the storyteller's view of how the world works. So they had to change the story that was the predominant story from the Great Depression generation. Stories are trying to ask four primary questions. Why are we here? What's gone wrong? What will fix things? And how will it look like then? What's gone, why are we here? What's gone wrong? What will fix things? And what will it look like then? And so they had to develop an industry to work on the hearts and minds of the typical American to change their story from thrift and conservative spending to extravagance. And this was the rise of the Mad Men. I don't know if you watched the TV show Mad Men, but the insights, I live not too far from Madison Avenue, and the insights that came along were profound revelations about the early psychology and understanding of the tools that we use to shift our thinking. Many people don't know that the father of the modern PR movement was the nephew of Sigmund Freud, and he took his uncle's insights about individual behavior and used them on the American culture at large to manipulate behavior and purchases. Many of us have heard before in probably Psychology 101 about the Maslow hierarchy of need. I've got a picture here of a, sort of an advanced version of the Maslow hierarchy of need, but it starts at the bottom with your basic biological and, and uh, physiological needs, safety needs, and then you move all the way up to these self-esteem needs and ultimately to the point of self-actualization where you have the ability to be generous or help other people. Now, here was the challenge. Next slide. At this point in history, Americans had the highest standard of living of any human beings that had ever existed up until this time. We had the rise of suburbs coming about. You had tract housing. The engines of the American economy were working. People were in the workforce. Things were going very well. So how do you begin to market products to people who are at the top of the pyramid? You change the story. 
you change it and you begin to change the way that goods are made in the United States. First of all, they had a scheme which was called planned obsolescence. Redesigning products to wear out at a price point where you don't feel ripped off and are willing to go right back out and buy the same product. Planned obsolescence. And if that didn't work because people had a vision of actually caring for their possessions, they came up with another plan, the role of trends and fads, perceived obsolescence. My father refused his entire life to be a victim of perceived obsolescence. When he was a young man, he got a job uh, selling very expensive clothes in a men's department store. And he bought all of these suits when he was in his 20s. And he just looked after those suits so well that some of them he still wears today. And it was very interesting growing up. We're just watching the flow of our culture. There were moments in my dad's fashion scheme where I would not be seen with him at the mall. And there were other moments where my friends would say, your dad is so cool, where does he shop? He just followed the flow, perceived obsolescence. He was immune to it. And then on top of this, all of these forces are working together to shift our story into a story of finding our needs and our, and our spiritual rituals put up in consumer purchases to the rise of the mass media. Now, when television first came along, you, you were aware that there was two kinds of information that was distributed on television. You had the filler, which was just the stuff you get through, and then you had the content, the stuff that really mattered. Well, television wasn't quite designed like we think it is. When we look at TV, we think of the programming as the content and the filler as the ads. But when they came up with it, they thought of the content as the advertisements and the shows as the filler to get their job across. And a new cultural rhythm began to find its way and disciple the typical American life. Work, watch, spend, repeat. Go to work all week, come home and watch TV for carefully placed ads. On the weekend, go to the mall and then spend it and then repeat that cycle. And that became, in many ways, the normal American life. Well, you take that and you throw on top of that social media and the culture that we live in, and that ritual and that medium has bled into every area of our life. Some people wonder what the mark of the beast is. I found it on the internet. I don't know if you know this. It's the mark of the beast. Next slide. Just producing mammon boards. I'm sort of half joking. The typical American today sees more advertisements in one year than a person living 50 years ago saw in their entire lifetime. And Jonathan Sachs goes on to talk about the effect of these story wars and reshaping the American ethos towards overconsumption. He says this, the Puritan values of thrift and modesty were smashed, abandoned for easy consumer credit, conspicuous consumption, and deep personal relationships with brands. In terms of epoch-marking changes, this has been as profound a shift as the atomic bomb an entirely different worldview, one with very, very mammonish overtones. The good life, but apart from God. Your satisfaction, your rituals, your practices, but apart from Christ. Vision and desire, but without the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This was an epoch-marking change. And all of us, if we were really honest, would say that this has affected our discipleship and our understanding of what it means to be a Christian in the world. For many of us, our lives, as Jesus would say, run after the same things as the pagans. And that's not on accident. That's because the culture has 
carefully discipled you into the way of mammon. Well, why is mammon so deadly? If this is true, if there's these larger contentious forces working on us and discipling us and forming our hearts and our habits and our loves and our desires, if this is true, why is mammon so deadly? What's the big deal about that? Well, the number one reason that mammon is so deadly is because the path of mammon is the path away from God. Mammon disciples us out of dependence on God and into self-dependence, which puts us in a state of enmity towards God. This doesn't happen all at once. Very few people consciously say, I just like to reject God right now and get sucked into a spirit of mammon. It's a seduction, it's slow, it's sophisticated, it's wise, it makes sense. But it leads us away from God. 1 Timothy 6, the Apostle Paul speaking to his disciple Timothy, pastoring the city of Ephesus, one of the financial centers of his day, says this, those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil and some people eager for money have wanted from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. This is very strong language. His categories are being pierced, being destroyed, grief. These are strong pastoral warnings. Jesus, in his parables, warns again against the dangers of this saying, the seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. I don't know if you've ever had the terrible experience of of choking on food or some situation like that. It's been my experience whilst choking that there's not very much long-term planning happening. You are in immediate survival mode for the next breath. What choking does is makes you lose all eternal perspective and gets you obsessed with now. I had a friend when I first moved to the United States. I came to the United States uh, to go to Bible college and uh, I was put in a little pen. It's hard to describe sort of how we were how we were treated, but I was stuck with all the other international students, and a lot of them were for different parts of the world. I was the, uh, the Australian international student, and uh, I, I was there on a scholarship, and I just could not have been more grateful. I dropped out of high school when I was 16 to work in a meat factory as a butcher, and I got this amazing opportunity to come to the United States and study, and I was so diligent and disciplined to whom much is given, much is required. And I had a friend who was in college with me and he'd come from the Soviet Union and he'd experienced the same thing. He was there on a scholarship and he had this incredible opportunity. Uh, When everyone was away for the summer and we were back at the school over the summer working on the uh, grounds crew, he got sucked into a get-rich-quick scheme. And I've never seen a spirit of mammon so fully possess somebody as what happened to him. And every time I would come home, he had this chart up and he was pitching people on this idea that he thought could make the money instantly. And so just sort of because he was my friend, I sat him down and I said, after refusing the opportunity about 19 times, I sat him down and I said, hey, hey, you know, I'm just checking in. You know, we're both international students or whatever, how your study's going. And I remember him saying to me, the studies are fine, but you need to know about this opportunity. And I'm like, "I've, I've actually heard about the opportunity. I'm not interested. But he said, you don't know where I'm from. You don't know how I grew up. 
you don't know how amazing America is compared to where I was from. And I watched his whole life be seduced into a spirit of mammon. It slowly begins to choke your life and it drifts, it just ever so subtly begins to push you out into dependence on yourself. It leads us away from God. The second threat is that it destroys our compassion. Mammon destroys compassion. It's a scarcity mentality. In 1 John chapter 3, we have this warning. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. That word there, uh, the ESV translate, don't close your heart. That's what it means in the Greek, that you see a need and somehow because of your own selfishness or your lack of compassion or your judgment of the poor, you close your heart. An appeal is being made to you and the, the doors go up and it's shut. You will not help. And when we think life is about the accumulation of possessions, about how far ahead we can get, People don't seem like an opportunity. They seem like a threat to us that we have to guard against. And so the walls go up. Now it says that this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Now if we have a faith but don't lay down our lives, we don't have the faith of Jesus. We end up with a different kind of faith. Mammon leads us away from God. It grieves us. It pierces our souls. It leads people into foolish and harmful things. It destroys our compassion for others, mammon is a threat to the kingdom of God. But what is the antidote to mammon? What is the antidote? Well, it's obviously, it's obviously somewhat simple. It's not gonna be something new, but it is taking these things and it is feasting on them. It is marinating on them. When I used to be a butcher, uh, one of the things I would do that would always make my mum uncomfortable, I would go and get this delicious steak and then I would cover it in marinade and I would throw it into the fridge and I would just leave it there for 10 days. My mum would always try and throw it out. I was like, put it back, please, mum. Put it back, please, mum. I want the sauce to get into the fiber of the meat. Mum would always just slap it on top with a brush and burn it and then it would burn and you'd peel off and then be this flavorless meat. So often what we do is, is we just paste on the promises of God and we, we don't let them make their way into our souls, into our spirits, into our hearts, into our affections and into our minds. And the attitude to Bamon is taking a sense of gratitude for what God has done for us in Jesus and just marinating on that, feasting, letting it soak into the core of our being. Hebrews 13, five says this, keep your lives free from the love of money, be content with what you have, why? Because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we can say with confidence, which is what we heard in this testimony, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? He's with me. This is what we have. All of us have heard the reality about our eternal riches in Christ, or maybe you've heard a sermon series on Ephesians where we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, but I don't think we look at that enough. Let's just have a look at a couple of things that we have in Christ. If we can pull this slide up here. Let's just have a look. The Word of God says in Jesus, I'm faithful, I'm God's child, I've been justified, I'm Christ's friend. I belong to God, I remember his... Next slide. I'm God's co-worker. I'm a, look how many things that you have here. He's expressed his kindness. We keep going here. I'm dead to sin, I'm not alone. I'm growing. Next slide here. If you just start spending... Next slide here. If you just start spending a little bit of time, you're gonna realize 
that we are living like paupers when we have every spiritual blessing in Jesus. If he did not spare his only son, what else would he withhold from us? We are co-heirs with Jesus. And that's one thing to be a theology, but when that has made its way into the fiber of your being, it makes you realize another status, another car, another symbol, it does nothing to me. I have every spiritual blessing in Christ. That can't be improved on. Taking that into the heart of where we are and marinating on it. The second call, obviously, is a call to generosity. And this is what Paul says, and you can imagine this pastoral meeting The Apostle Paul sits Timothy down or writes to him and he says, hey, look, you've got some really wealthy people in your congregation. I want you to command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. I imagine how this meeting went down. Timothy's like, hey, 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 Steve, how are you? Good, thanks. Look, Paul's just come in with a letter and uh, just wondering uh, if you had a minute. Uh, I heard that things are going well for you financially and so I just wanna command you to be generous. I wanna command you to be generous to be willing to share, to be rich in good deeds. This is not a suggestion. This is a command from one of the apostles as a pastoral injunction about those whom God has blessed. Sometimes we get squeamish about this, but if you look at Romans 12, 8, when it lifts out the spiritual gifts, one of the spiritual gifts is giving. And if you look at all the the phrases that, that give the imperative in the descriptions of these gifts, when it comes to the gift of giving, it says, if giving is your gift, then give generously. If God specifically deposits in the body of Jesus people with the gift of giving and he says to them, leverage it. Just like you'd say to somebody who has the gift of serving, serve. You see someone with a teaching gift and you're like, preach God's word. You see somebody else with an administrative gift and they can help you, like organize us, please, with all of your might. But then you see this gift of giving and what does it say? Give generously. If you've got that, bless with the abundance out of which God has given you. We're at a terrible moment in our society right now because there's all of these ideologies making competing claims. There's an increasing rise of socialism amongst young people who are just absolutely disillusioned about the wealth gap. You've got rich people who are in many ways mocking millennials, saying they're a lazy and entitled generation. And we're looking for a different economy. But there is a different economy when you read the scriptures. The body of Christ should be operating out of an alternative economy than the one of the world. In Acts chapter four, we see something. It says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now listen to this phrase. God's grace were so powerfully at work among them that there were no needy persons among them. Is that what you think of when you think of grace? The grace of God saving great sinners. Well, in this passage, the grace of God was producing an alternative economy. What a phrase if that could be said at your church or in your city, there is no needy people among us. Now, this is a beautiful passage here and If you just do a little experiment at your church next time and just totally anonymously, your pastor will love that you do this, just just get everybody to write down their income on a a little note card. What? Write down your income on a little note card and just put it in the offering place anonymously and then just figure out how much money is annually made in your local congregation and then do another one with like, what are the actual needs of the congregation? 
and just match them. And in almost every scenario, I, I guarantee you, there does not need to be a needy person among them. And one of the ways that people believed that Jesus was alive from the dead, one was the, the sexual purity of the people of God. The other one was their financial generosity. People had just never seen people who were as generous as this. Kent Hughes says this, I love this. Every time I give, I declare that money does not control me. Perpetual generosity is a perpetual de-deification of money. Every time I give, this is spiritual formation to defy the spirit of mammon and honor the spirit of Jesus Christ. This is an ongoing formative act of worship that we do. Mammon's a threat. Mammon gets into our hearts through our culture's story. It leads us away from God and closes our hearts to others. Generosity releases it. Knowing who we are in Jesus releases us from it. But I think there's one thing that, or a couple of things we have to do as I close that come with Jesus' warnings. Jesus says this in Luke 12. Then he said to them, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Can you imagine having a conversation with Jesus and you're just walking around living your life and he's like, whoa, whoa, watch out, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed because life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. So one of the things I think is important for us to do is just to discern and deconstruct the stories that are in our hearts. How do we become who we are? I read uh, the biography of the world richest, world's richest man, Warren Buffett, at the time he was. And in his biography, it was so fascinating because he gave an insight when he determined in his life when he wanted to be the world's richest man. He said he was 10 years old and his father was a small trader and he took him on a trip to Wall Street. And on a typical Wall Street lunch, somebody walked around with a tray of leaves and then the banker picked out which individual leaves he wanted for his cigar and rolled the cigar. And he said, in my heart, I said, I want wealth like that. Whatever that is, that's the kind of money I wanna have. We never know when the stories get in our heart that make us do what we do. The two questions we should always ask ourselves, why am I doing this? And then the second question is, why am I really doing this? The story of mammon, why are we here? Pleasure. What's gone wrong? Lack. What will fix things? More. And how will it look then? Abundance without God. But here's the story of the kingdom of God. Why are we here? We're here for God. What's gone wrong? Sin. What's gonna fix things? Christ who's reconciling all things on heaven and on earth to himself. And how will it look like then? The restoration of all things, everything rightly ordered in its place around the glory of God in an eternal kingdom. From the book Dismissing Jesus again, deeply and widely cherished assumptions about Christ's society and ourselves block us from seeing Jesus' call. We must escape these blinders before we can walk Jesus' path again. When we do that, we'll see the gospel of Christ is not primarily about getting into heaven or about living a comfortable middle-class life. It's about being free from the ancient, pervasive, and delightful oppression of mammon in order to create a very different community, the church, an alternative city kingdom here and now on earth by means of living and celebrating the way of the cross. Leslie Newbegin said a quote that in many ways has shaped our thinking about church planning in New York, is that a lot of people don't want to talk about God or the gospel or Jesus. So how, how do you bring it up? 
It's very, very difficult at lunch to, to be, you know, just having your lunch and say, oh, how's it going? So, pretty good. How are you going? I'm doing really well because I've been uh, baptized in the propitiatory blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It just, it's, we just don't have conversations like that in our culture. Leslie Newbegin says this, we must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. We must live in the kingdom of God in such a way that it provokes questions for which the gospel is the answer. I love that vision of the city generous. Because where else do people really get together in rooms like this to figure out how can I increase in generosity with a liberated heart? This is a tiny foretaste of the kingdom of Jesus on earth. Now look, I wanna be clear here. I'm not advocating that everybody sell everything they have and become poor because then somebody else is gonna to have to make some money to help the poor. That's not, that's not my philosophy. Maybe some will, some will be called to do that, but that will be a unique call. But one piece of wisdom that I've learned, many people in my church are very, very wealthy in New York. We have a lot of successful people who work in financial services. But it's making sure that wherever we are, we have provocative lifestyle distinction in the field that God has called us. I have one friend who's a billionaire, an actual billionaire. I don't know if he is anymore. He was a billionaire. And he had a jet. And there's nothing wrong with jets. But he realized that what it was doing was cutting him off from a lot of other people in his company. And so for him, he didn't sell all his wealth, but he got rid of his jets. And the result of that was that he traveled with regular people on an airplane. And his friends all said to him, why on earth would you do that? Come on. And his reply was, I can give a million dollars more away if I don't do that. And it blew his friend's mind. Now, he flew business class and first class everywhere he went. But in his world, he had a provocative life that challenged others. What would happen if Jesus' people had this vision again? The grace of God being so powerfully at work among us that there is no needy people among us. That's the dream the world is trying to achieve apart from the power of God. And that is Jesus' vision for his people with his power. I think he simply waits to find a people who say, yes, I am in. I want to close with a quote one of the apologists made during one of the persecutions in the early church. And I think this is just such a beautiful vision about what God calls us to, to break the spirit of mammon and embrace the spirit of Jesus and live generous lives. This is what it said. They love one another and he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their own homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. And if there's among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Such, O king, is their manner of life. And verily, this is a new people, and there is something divine in the midst of them. May that be said about this community. Verily, this is a new people and there is something divine in the midst of them.